0: Turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11, Hebrews chapter 11. We began to ask a few questions of faith a couple of weeks ago as we began our study in this chapter, namely, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us something of an answer, saying, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. We're given something of an abstract definition, a a way of identifying this concept that in reality is, is difficult to wrangle. Faith being one of those things that is difficult to define, or at least to articulate a definition, but we seem to know it when we see it, right? And so what we get in what remains of Hebrews chapter 11 are illustrations of faith on display. Faith in Action. What seems abundantly clear, and certainly a theme that runs throughout this chapter, is that saving faith does something in us. The Bible says that faith without works is dead. We are compelled, called to action by an abiding faith and confidence in the finished work of Jesus for us and the provision of Jesus for us in our everyday experience. The wisdom and insight of God for us, what is best for us, what is needed by us, all of these compel us by faith to walk with him, to persevere with him in faith. So we have this long series of examples cited here to help us, even in our struggles to define with words the idea of faith, to demonstrate or to illustrate what faith in action truly looks like. We're going to look this morning at verses 7 through 40 of Hebrews chapter 11. If you found your way there, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 7. <clears throat> the Bible says here, by faith, Noah, after he, was, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that housed foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, "...received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore from one man, in fact from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith without having received the promises, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac he received the promises and he was offering his unique son, the one that had been said about your seed will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able to raise someone from the dead. And as an illustration, he received him back by faith. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come by faith. Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, after Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin, for he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on the reward. By faith, he left Egypt and not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him, who is visible, who is invisible." By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer, the firstborn, might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being encircled by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead. They were raised to life again. Some men were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith. But they didn't receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us so that they wouldn't be made perfect without us. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His word. You may be seated. There are subtle shifts along the way in this chronological telling of the works of faith from the Old Testament. Subtle shifts. So, that there's overlap in the principles we'll discuss. In fact, I think that each of the six principles I want to show you from our passage are really at work in every verse that we're going to read together. You'll see what I mean along the way. One of the highlights of verses 7 through 16 is this that faith doesn't look back, or maybe better said, faith looks to the future faith is willing to turn away from the former way of life to embrace what God has promised us the future holds for us. In a series of examples cited here in Hebrews chapter 11, we have individuals who are leaving behind a life that held for them great promise in favor of a journey with Jesus that would result in what God had promised would be far better than their former way of life could have ever offered. For instance, later in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses leaves behind his identity as a member of Pharaoh's house in order to rather identify with the oppressed and suffering people of God, trusting that what he stood to have in Jesus was better, th- better than anything Pharaoh could have ever offered. The invitation of these examples is that we would gladly leave behind our past. Even a past experience that may hold forth for us great reward or great benefit. In order to embrace the journey that lies ahead and what awaits us at the end of this life with Jesus. Look back to verse number 7 by faith noah after he was warned about was not yet uh, was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear built an ark to deliver his family by faith he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith we talked about this a little 2 weeks ago this verse specifically that the, the conflict is not between faith and reason or faith and our thinking. The conflict is between the seen and the unseen. The, the challenge is that even when the circumstances of our life don't add up to an outcome that sounds or feels like the promise of God fulfilled, we are called upon to trust in him. We'll deal with that issue a little more as we work through. Noah had not yet seen or experienced this phenomenon that God had described for him. It's going to rain and there's going to be a flood. And not only is it going to rain and there be a flood, there's going to be a flood on the desert plain. And you're going to build an ark there that will deliver you and your family through. Trusting the promises of an unseen God, Noah, confident that what the future held was under the authority of his God, follows through with this endeavor, looking forward and not behind. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. He's looking to the future in God. He's looking to the future. We mentioned Moses a moment ago who leaves behind Pharaoh's house and identifying as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But consider for a moment all that Abraham leaves behind. If you go back to that Genesis account, Abraham was a man of great status and and prominence, a man of great wealth before coming to faith, before believing God and it being accredited to him as righteousness. At the death of his father, Terah, he was to be the figurehead, the patriarchal head of his entire family. The greatest man in Ur of the Chaldeans, he was a man who was, who stood to inherit as the heir apparent, all of the material wealth, all of the power, all of the prominence of his father. His identity was bound up in his position as heir apparent to his father. That's who he was. His security was bound up in the material wealth and the sheer number of that family he was to be given charge over. That family was his community and all of their bond servants. Abraham is leaving everything behind To embrace a new identity in Christ ultimately. To to come under the authority and to find security in the provision of God for him. His new community was a community yet to come. As God promised, I'm going to make your descendants as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Abraham left a great deal behind. And what he left behind held forth for him promise. Some of us struggle with leaving behind a past that holds forth no promise whatsoever. But what Abraham walks away for and walks away for into the mysterious, he walks away from by faith. He didn't know where he was going when God initially called, but by faith, believing the promise of God, he went. In verse 9, the Bible says, By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co heirs of the same promise. He comes away from this stable and steady way of life to living in tents as exiles, as strangers, as sojourners, as pilgrims in a land that was not yet for him identified. Verse 10 tells us he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, that is which is stable, which is steady, which is built upon the rock, which is immovable, whose architect and builder is God. In anticipation of what heaven afforded Abraham, he walked away from everything that this world could offer. We cite it again and again. The practical call, the practical message of Hebrews is that we would persevere. The preacher is saying to his audience here, press on for what heaven provides in favor of what this earth has offered. And the message to our congregation this morning is to walk away from everything that this world offers and press on to what heaven provides verse 11, the Bible says, By faith even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore from one man, in fact from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore by the power of the object of their faith, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God was at work doing the impossible in this family, having called them away from a former way of life and assigned to them a great destiny by faith. Verse 13 says, these all died in faith without having received the promises. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. In this way, our experience parallels that of Abraham and his family. There is a both-and dynamic about Abraham's experience. On the one hand, he received the promises of God. That is, the promises of God were made directly and explicitly to Abraham. And at least the beginnings of the fulfillment of those promises were brought to bear in the lifetime of Abraham. He saw Isaac born forth, a miraculous act of God. By faith, he was granted this child that was to be the child through whom all of these others would be, would be ultimately brought forth. But on some level, he didn't receive the, promises. the fullness of the fulfillment of those promises wouldn't come to pass until many, many years later. And in many ways, the fulfillment of those promises were only finally fulfilled in Jesus. And in some ways, the, the fullness of that promise made to Abraham is still being fulfilled in our day as we are being grafted in to the family and lineage of Abraham by faith in Jesus until the full number of of Israel is brought to be a part of the sheepfold of God. It's fulfilled and yet it's not. And our experience is the same. This is, this is where we get down to brass tacks of how we make faith assessments, right? If you have trusted in Christ, you have received The promise of salvation, your sins past and present and future have been forgiven. The hope of heaven abides within our hearts and the life of God abides within us. We have been saved. We have received the promise of God. And yet at the same time, we will only reach the full full fulfillment of those promises in the heaven that awaits us at the end of this life. Or at the return of Jesus. Now, now, what Hebrews 11, in my estimation, and in some ways the book of Hebrews invites us to do, is to take an assessment of our life experience. Look back for just a moment across your Christian experience. Look, think about your Christian life for a moment, and think of the many ways that God has been gracious to you. How he's provided for your needs. How there's always been someone there to minister to you, to encourage you. The circumstances of your life, even when you couldn't understand in the moment how it might add up to your benefit and the glory of God. Somehow, someway, God has always been faithful to show up. Look back beyond your Christian experience. Lost and without Christ. And count the ways how in spite of your faithlessness, in spite of your running headlong into sin and devouring the things of this world, in spite of your constant pursuit of lustful pleasure, how there was always someone, a signpost, some way in which God was working to condition your heart to receive the promises of the gospel. Those past experiences, our observations of God's grace in time past, are assurance for us, they are the guarantee that just as God has been faithful in time past, he will be faithful in the future as well. Here we're, we're beginning to experience this transition in Hebrews 11, away from this idea of faith merely looking forward to faith trusting an unseen God, even when the circumstances of our life don't add up to an outcome that looks like what we expected God to do in us or for us. They recognized that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth, and they were well satisfied with their status because they labored across the span of their life, not for what this reward would offer, but for what awaited them in Christ. Verse 15 says, if they were thinking about what they, where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's already prepared a city for them. I, I, hate, I hate this saying, and I don't hear it as much anymore because I think it's been roundly criticized within the Christian community. But this whole idea that you can be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good, nothing could be further from the truth. If you can fix your attention on what awaits us in heaven, there is nothing on earth that can stop you. You can kill me, but if my focus is on what awaits me in heaven, that's just a minor disruption in my life. Because what awaits me far surpasses anything that I might... In- there, there is a feeling of a sense, a true sense, a real sense of invincibility that comes with a, heaven, with, with, a, with a focus fixed on heaven. That's exactly the way faith was at operation in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, his bride. In verse 17, the Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... He received the promises, and he was offering his unique son, the one that had been said about your seed will be traced through Isaac. Here we have again a set of circumstances that don't add up to the outcome that we'd come to expect. So God said, Abraham, you're going to have a son, and through that son, you're going to be given a great family, a vast ancestry. And they even try to sort of rig the game and they come up with Ish- Ishmael, and that's a disaster. But in due time, by faith, God gave them Isaac. God said, He's the one. And then there came a day, still in Isaac's boyhood, when God said, Abraham, take Isaac and go up Mount Moriah and offer his life as a sacrifice to me. You see how the math doesn't compute circumstances of Abraham's life are not adding up but Abraham is insistent he will do what God would have him to do and so he marches with the boy to the top of Mount Moriah prepared to make the sacrifice knife in hand he draws back and God stays the hand and provides a ram as an offering to be made even In the face of circumstances that did not make sense to him, he would persevere in faithful obedience to God. Verse 19 provides us with some insight into the mind of Abraham that Genesis does not offer. The Bible says here, he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. And as an illustration, he received him back. In other words, when God commanded Abraham, Isaac was as good as dead until God stopped his hand. As an illustration of resurrection from the dead, he restored him back through the provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. That's grace. In verse 20, the Bible says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. That is, trusting that God would do what he had guaranteed in the past he would do. He made a blessing for Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff, believing even on his deathbed that God would do what he had promised he would do in the past. He blessed the sons of Joseph. Verse 22, the Bible says, By faith Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. On death's doorstep, Joseph said, this is what the future holds for us, realizing that that slavery and bondage was in the future of Israel's experience. He looked beyond that experience and even made instructions with regards to the removal of his bones from Egypt, carried back to the promised land. Verse 23, the Bible says, after Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Can, Can we pause there for just a moment? I see over the past several months, and especially during this pandemic, Christians saying things that are silly with regards to the contrast that exists between faith and fear. Can we make a couple of observations here? By faith, after Moses was born, he he was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Some would say that hiding a child in the reeds of the Nile River would indicate fear. But the Bible says they did not fear the king's edict. Hiding the child in the reeds of the Nile River is not here an expression of fear. It is to employ the brain and good sense that God has given all of us. Acting with wisdom is not being fearful it's just using the brain and the common sense that God has given us. Even as we act with wisdom, Even as we employ the common sense God has given us, we do so without fear or trepidation in our heart because we recognize that ultimately He marks our every step. He is absolutely sovereign over the very hairs of our head, every beat of our heart. And in that, even as we employ good sense, we are able to rest that come what may, Jesus is Lord. Verse 24 says by faith Moses when he'd grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the reward. He is forward focused. And in spite of all of the many obstacles, obstacles that must have seemed to him insurmountable, his choice was to identify with the suffering and oppressed people of God rather than to enjoy the prominence and the privilege that would come with being a part of Pharaoh's house. Trust the promises of an unseen God. This is the function of faith in our life. Verses 27 through 31, the Bible speaks here of how faith enables obedience. Now that's true salvifically or theologically in the sense that apart from God granting us the gift of faith, we do not believe. And apart from the activity of faith in us, we do not repent of our sins. Apart from the work of faith within our very members, we cannot obey the command of God. But even further than that, in a practical sense, it is true that faith empowers or enables our ability to obey. Let me show you in verse 27. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being encircled by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. In every example cited here, whether it be Moses or Rahab or the people of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho, they do so as an act of, of obedience, which is the expression of their trust and confidence that God knows what is best, that His insight, His wisdom is superior to ours, and if we only do what God tells us to do by faith, everything will somehow, some way, work itself out. Moses perseveres. In the face of great opposition, beyond all of those obstacles before him, by faith in God. Instituting the Passover, believing by faith that the blood on their doorpost would ensure the passing over of the death angel on that fateful night. With fear in his heart. Can you imagine the fear in his heart when they stepped to this impassable place there on the shores of the Red Sea? And God, by his great power, would cause the seas to part? By faith, they walk through on dry ground. By faith, Rahab hides the spies, those Hebrew spies that come to scope out the city of Jericho. And in doing so, Rahab distinguishes herself from those who do not have faith, who would disobey the command of God. Can you imagine how foolish some of those Israelites must have felt marching around the city of Jericho? Talk about an unconventional plan for military action. We're just going to get ourselves out here and run down over the course of days, marching around and around and around this city. We're so accustomed to hearing that. We're taught that at such a young age. I I think we discount how foolish that really was. You're supposed to have the city under siege. You're supposed to be in an advantaged position. You're doing the last thing that you ought to do, militarily speaking. You're out there running yourself ragged with little resource, when you could be starving them out on the inside if you only make good use of what you have in your care. And there they are with trumpets marching around and around the city. It must have been a good laugh, comedic for those inside the city walls. But their obedience, even obedience without understanding, was rewarded by God and that the impossible came to pass. The walls of that city came tumbling down. Our faith enables obedience every act of defiance every sin is really just unbelief unbelief in our heart working its way to the surface. We obey because we trust or believe in the moral superiority of God over all others. We obey because we trust the promise of God to meet our needs, even when we can't understand how it might add up. We go in obedience, even when it's dangerous, because by faith, we look forward to a life that goes beyond this existence. It's faith. It's faith. It's faith believe him trust him trust him trust him and it'll it'll work out somehow some way either here or there it'll work out we have examples in the next two paragraphs of it working itself out here and then it working itself out there by here i mean earth by there i mean heaven verses 32 through 34 we find that faith positions the believer to see the power of god look to verse 32 What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35 says, Women received their dead. They were raised to life again. These men and women were positioned to see God work in these miraculous ways by their faith. Here's what what I mean by that. You don't get into a den with lions except by faith. You don't go to battle with 1,000 to 1 odds except by faith. You don't go down into the valley of battle against the Philistine giant if you're a Hebrew shepherd boy with a slingshot and five stones, except by faith. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, as we'll see in verses 35 and following. But you'll never be positioned well to see God work in these ways, except by faith. By faith, we take risk. By faith, we we are daring people, willing to do the dangerous, willing to do what doesn't make sense from our earthly perspective, willing to risk it all. Because again, our investment is not primarily here. And our reward is not worldly, it's heavenly. So we can throw caution to the wind and even live dangerous lives for the advancement of the kingdom. By faith in what awaits us in Jesus. Now, every story doesn't end this way. There are far more shepherd boys who foolishly go off to battle who die by their sword than there are those who win victory over the Philistine giant. And there have been far more Christians in Christian history who have died in the lion's den than have been delivered. Verses 35 and following attest to this reality. Some men were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Would you just underline that? Some men were tortured, and they wouldn't accept their release, so that they might gain a better resurrection which is to say not not an earthly resurrection in the sense we often think it is not that God would come along and allow their mortal lives to be resurrected. It is that God would come along and allow their immortal lives to be resurrected. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two they died by the sword they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins destitute afflicted and mistreated the world was not worthy of them everybody's story is not a David story of winning victory in in the valley of battle everyone's story is not a Daniel story of God shutting the mouth of the lion in fact there are by far more of these stories than there are the Davids and the Daniels only you don't know their name because they didn't receive the kind of resurrection that we're so impressed by they received a better resurrection not the raising of their physical life in the here and now but the resurrection of their immortal life in the there and then and the highest honor the, the, the greatest celebration is is paid to them not those whose names we know best, the world was not worthy of them, is a title, a description reserved for those who remain nameless in the history of the church, who die in obscurity, their blood providing fodder for, food for, nourishment for, the seed of the advancement of the gospel. Here's what we're learning here. Faith empowers the believer to persevere through great difficulty, even in the face of death. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. The world was not worthy of them. I think with each sermon that i've prepared in the days leading up with this whole practical theme of perseverance being before us the way it is my abiding concern for me and for you is that given the incredible level of comfort and affluence that we enjoy and the comfort and affluence that we enjoy is unmatched in all the world and perhaps even unmatched in the history of the world We have yet to be tested in these ways. We have deluded in many instances ourselves into believing that when this kind of difficulty comes, we will remain steadfast. And maybe we will, but that is a hypothesis yet to be tested in the American church. I suspect there'll be a great separation of the sheep from the goat, the wheat from the chaff. May the Lord help us in our unbelief and grant us a measure of faith that would hold us fast even on the most difficult of days saving faith does precisely that one last observation found in here in verses 39 and 40 all these were approved through their faith but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that we wouldn't be made perfect. So that they wouldn't be made perfect without us. This is already and not yet dynamic that's at work. Abraham received it but not the fullness of it. Moses received it but not the fullness of it. Even you and I by faith in Jesus have received it but not the fullness of it. That is yet to come. Notice the first line of verse 39. All these were approved through their faith. As a pastor and student of the Bible, I sort of enjoy when you come to passages in the Bible that are really challenging, where there's a lot of debate and back and forth about what this means or what the background and context for that is. And there, there, there are a few noteworthy passages like that. One's coming in our next series of sermons that I've sort of been playing with over the past couple of weeks. I love that kind of thing. Bible nerd stuff, right? But for the most part, Hebrews 11 is free of any of that with one exception. Can I show it to you before we're done? Look down to verse number 32. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Just, just forget for a moment about David and Samuel David, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. Heart, certainly not a perfect man, but a man after God's own heart. Samuel's faithfulness to God is told over the course of 1st and 2 Samuel. We know something about them. And even forget Barak, because most don't know much about Barak. Consider with me for just a moment Gideon, Samson, and Jephthah. Now here's, here's the conflict. Here's the controversy. Here's the great question. What in the world Are these men's names doing in the Bible's Hall of Fame? Now here's the deal. If you know about Samson and Gideon and Jephthah, probably most of what you know about them has been shaped by the coloring book pictures that you did in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. And I would argue they are not a fair representation of the real character of those men. They were scoundrels. Take Gideon, for example. We want to make Gideon be this great hero who, even in his fear, God made strong and courageous and sent out to battle to do this great deed, this powerful work. That is not the point of the Gideon narrative. The point there is that in spite of Gideon, at a time in Israel's history when God had nothing to work with, he was at work preserving and protecting his people. There are these brief episodes in which it seems that Gideon is on the right track. But if you'll keep reading in the book of Judges, there seems to be this backsliding. Gideon seems to refer back to some of these Baal worship-ish kind of ways. Gideon is not a hero in the Judges narrative. Think about Samson for a moment. We colored the little pages. My kids bring them home. We, We, you know, we have those at home. I'm not, I'm not dissing anybody's program, I'm just telling you, Samson is not a hero to be emulated. We see him as this man of great strength, and indeed he was. But think of how Samson died. Samson dies essentially in an act of suicide, trying to get payback or revenge on Philistines. He would have never been in this position in the first place if it weren't for the poor decisions that he made. And those poor decisions over the course of his life were always driven by Samson's women problems if I could put it mildly. Samson is not a hero in the book of Judges and, and I got to tell you Jephthah is the worst of all. You may not know much about Jephthah but he's a marauder. He's a gangster. So much so that he's exiled from his people and finally Israel gets to this place in their history where there's the prospect of an enemy invasion and, and, and rather than, than, than doing the, the thing that might have been more moral, which was to humble themselves before God and plead that God would would intervene on their behalf. They say, well, let's get us a gangster and a marauder. We'll just hire someone who's as bloodthirsty as our enemy, and he will surely protect us. And indeed, that's what he does. But that's who Jephthah is. What in the world are these people doing in the hall of fame when it comes to faith? I'm overgeneralizing a bit here. I get the challenges of these questions, but if I could offer a potential answer, it is because in response to faith, God grants grace indiscriminately so that anyone, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing, or no matter what they might do, any person, no matter who they are, or where they came from, or what their reputation is, what their character looks like, the blackness of their heart. Any person, any person, any person, any person in this room, any person not in this room, any person who believes in their heart unto righteousness and confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, any person can be saved from their sin. God lavishes grace indiscriminately on those Who call upon his name. Aren't you glad for that? You should be. Because there are some Gideons and some Samsons and some Jephthahs in this very room. There are some Gideons and Samsons and Jephthahs that make up this local body. Some Gideons who are cowardly and weak. Indecisive and unwilling to step up and be be bold. But God has intervened in your life and called you to himself and emboldened you to advance the gospel. Some Sampsons in our congregation and in our community, and maybe some who still live as a Samson at the present hour with your own form of lady troubles, as we say. God has touched your life and sanctified you by faith and drawn you to himself. There's a place for you in the kingdom by God's grace. There's a place for you in the kingdom. Some Jephthahs who are inclined toward harboring bitterness and hostility in your heart, who've been done wrong in your past, and so you're jaded and frustrated and looking for any opportunity to pour out on others what has been poured out on you. There's a place for you by faith in the kingdom to come to him and to receive this grace and mercy that God gives indiscriminately with great mercy. Aren't you glad for that? Jephthah and Gideon and Samson, Come to Jesus, believe on him, believe on him, and find grace sufficient for your weakness. The invitation of our passage is is to come to him and to believe, and to, to believe in this way that moves us, that has real effect in our life. In every one of these examples, here's what you'll find. When the individual discussed believes, That belief has bearing in their life from that moment forward. It changes the course of their life. And in some cases, it changes the course of redemptive history. You don't have to live the way that you've lived anymore. You don't have to be Gideon or Samson or Jephthah. You don't have to be those people. That's one of the beautiful aspects of the gospel. There's a new creation for us in Christ, the power to overcome the sin that has so easily entangled us. We need only come to Christ. Oh, when you come and you foul it up again, which you inevitably will, there's grace sufficient for the hour. Aren't you glad for that? I know that I am. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth the chance to be refreshed and encouraged in this passage this morning. God, I I pray that you would save to the uttermost, that you would keep us close to you, that you would help us by the Spirit to persevere until our last day and our last breath. Lord, our confession as a church is that we believe. We ask that you would help us with our unbelief.